Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the Second London Baptist Confession, Chapter 3 of God's Decree. We've been working our way through all the paragraphs. Last week we actually moved a little bit faster because the end paragraphs really are all generally about one particular aspect of this. We've already talked about most of these aspects, so it's a little easier for us to move a little faster through these. Um, but let me just back up here on the slides um, because we, we read the second bullet point under this, but let me just back up to this paragraph. So we're, we're talking, first of all, you can see in the outline, the specific decree of predestination to eternal life. And then we were in the second section, which is its positive outworking, the election of those. And then this is the effectual execution. Paragraph six is the effectual execution of election. So let me just read the paragraph again, and then we'll flip to the next slide, just talk about those two bullet points, and then we'll move on. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath by the, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ, by his Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are, are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. All right, so... You can see that this, obviously, first of all, we're talking about God's decree, right? So his decree is not just about election, right? But obviously, even then, they know that the concern is, is this understanding of how God's decree, how God choosing and deciding how everything was going to happen in history, how that applies to people and salvation. So they knew this too, that this is a question that people have because we are, are in our human nature, we want to believe that we can do whatever we want to do with free will, right? So you hear this talked about. So we see this paragraph specifically about election to address that. So the first two points that we made was the accomplishing of God's decree of election is glorification. There are means or ways that this is accomplished. That's what it talks about this, to appoint the elect unto glory. God does not decree, just decree what is to happen. He decrees the plan that will carry his will out. So... It's kind of funny, we happened to be watching a movie last night, nothing to do with Christians or anything else, but one of the main characters in the movie said it was something, you know, something bad was happening, they were about to partake of something bad, they were about to rob a bank, and they didn't want to do this, but they had to because their daughter was being held captive. <laughs> anyway, the point is, is that well, the main character said, think of all the bad decisions we've made to get to this point, right? So this is true. <laughs> There's all these things that happen that to get you to the place of salvation. That's the point. It's kind of a weird tie-in with bank robbery. But anyway, it, it's to get to the point of salvation, there's all these things that have to happen. His decree is not just what's going to happen, it's all the plan that will carry his will out. Think about that. There's no other way that that can happen, right? There's no other way that that can happen. Otherwise, God would be leaving it to chance, Right? He would be actually just letting it go and hoping that it comes out to be his will. No, it can't be that way. It has to be that he is actually decreeing what's going to happen so that his will is carried out. All right. So the means of accomplishing glorification are, and these were listed in the paragraph, effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance of the saints. This is also known as the order of salvation or the order of salutis in Latin, which is what's back there on that wall on the poster. Order of salvation. So these five steps are what are mentioned in the paragraph, 
It's also mentioned in scriptures. Let's look at these two references right here. First of all, 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So notice there are multiple steps there that are part of the salvation process. We see it again, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning, beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Again, we see different aspects of what the salvation process is. And we have to recognize that that's the case, right? So if you think about this, in the most basic forms, whether or not you understand the order of salvation or these different five points or things that happen, you should be able to see these five points and understand them. But the point is, is that you do know that there's more than one thing, right? What's two things that generally you think of when you think of salvation? What are they? Number one would be, <laughs> now you're like, okay, which one of the ones are you looking for? Okay, so if you think about this, the first thing that you actually normally would respond with is repentance. This is part of the effectual calling. It's repentance, repentance, right? I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, repentance. You feel bad for your sin. You're sorry for your sin, right? But you also believe in Jesus Christ. So it's not like you repent and you're like, man, I wish there was somebody that I could tell I'm sorry. Do you, you see what I mean? You don't see that anybody who's actually getting saved. You don't see that. There's not like there's some disconnect and they knew they needed to, for, to, for, to be forgiven, but they didn't know who was going to forgive them. And then later they find out, oh, it's Jesus. He's the one. Right? That's not the way it works. This all happens almost instantaneously at the same moment. So all of these things, you think about this. When you're saved, you're adopted as one of God's children. We see this many verses, right? We talk about this <clears throat> many times. We are adopted as his children. That's why you're a child of God. You're adopted into his family, Right? So when does that adoption happen? You get saved and he fills out the paperwork? No. You get saved, you're adopted. That moment. You see what I mean? In other words, even though these, this is the order, because we see this reflected in the scripture, it still happens com- condensed down. And you say, well, what's, you know, what's the time difference there? You're like, you know, so if you're adopted, like, when are you sanctified? Well, at the same time. Well, when are you justified? Uh, same time. Are you with me on this? Don't, don't get hung up on how much time is there between the steps. Okay? You're not responding, so I'm going to say okay. All right. <laughs> paragraph 6. Wherefore, we're continuing the paragraph now. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called into faith in Christ, by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. So, without Christ's redemption, the decree of election could not be carried out. Does that make sense? In other words, God chose who would be elect, but it was dependent on Christ's redemption for you to be elect. You would not be redeemed unless Christ had died on the cross and been risen again. He had to do that for you to be saved. Does that make sense? Of course, that was also part of God's plan. Redemption is accomplished by Christ's work, but it's applied by the Holy Spirit. So we see this in the verse I just read, that it mentions the Spirit had done this. So keep in mind, Christ is the one who died on the cross. Christ is the one who paid the penalty for your sins. 
Christ is the one who did this, but the application of that to you happens through the Holy Spirit. Through the Spirit. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Isn't Jesus involved? Triune God. Triune God. Three in one. Yes, he's involved. What about God the Father? I want to be saved by God the Father. No, it doesn't work that way. Okay? It doesn't, you don't get to pick. Well, which, who's, which one saved you? You know, it's not, you know, oh, God the Father. Oh, God the Father, you must be important. The Holy Spirit? Eh, no, come on. It's all the same. It's all God. And you don't deserve any of it. The timing of salvation is foreordained, just as the means themselves are. It is up to God when redemption is applied to a specific member of the elect. So we saw, saw this in the paragraph where it said, in, his due, in due time. So that means that the Spirit actually turns your heart of stone into your heart of flesh when God has planned for that to happen. Obviously, we've dealt with this before, right? We've talked about this many times. You'd like it to be when you're five. And then begin that sanctification process, right? You would like it not to be for someone that you're praying for when they're on their deathbed. But we have no control, do we? Somebody can hear the gospel their whole life, never get saved until the very end, or never get saved. Well, they weren't elect. But if they did get saved, and it is on their deathbed, it's God's will. They're not selecting when that timing happens. Right? It could be right before they die. Hours before they die. Who's the go-to guy? Leave on the cross. Right? Hours before. Have you heard stories? There are stories out there. You can read them about people that are, are die, literally dying. And they, they, at that moment, they actually get saved. Doesn't happen a lot. Does happen. You with me? So, God is in control of the timing. Now, you know, You'd think inherently we would know this, but let's just remember that that's the case. I mean, we're talking about election and the saints. It's not that, well, they're elect their whole life. This isn't, we don't do like, believe like Presbyterians do. We say, well, they're part of the covenant, so that's it, they're in. At some point, they'll get saved. <laughs> All right, so you talk to somebody who actually knows something as a, as a Presbyterian, they'll say, well, no, everyone's not going to get saved as part of the covenant. Then what's it mean to be part of the covenant? Well, wait, 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 that's just a sign. It's a sign of what? Being part of the covenant. Which means what? Well, that they're part of God's family. Are they saved? Well, no. <laughs> it's very hard to get past that point because there's kind of a circular reasoning there. Right? They're not adopted. Yeah, they're part of the family, but they're not adopted, which is also a good point. Anyway, because they do believe in adoption. Anyway, uh, let's not get too, too far down that rabbit hole. Um, so you understand that God's timing and his redemption is up to him, right? He controls it. We don't control that. All right. Verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So God hasn't appointed us for wrath. Obviously, what's the implication? Some he has appointed for wrath. This is his decision. This is his decree. 
Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. That is the order of salvation laid out. You want to write that down in your margin or in the back of your Bible? Romans 8.30, order of salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, beloved, I'm sorry, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Who did the choosing? God did the choosing. God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Who was the one who chose you to believe in that verse? God chose you to believe. Who was the one that sanctified you through the Spirit? God. You did not choose this. This flies in the face for those who say that everything is under God's control except salvation. That's up to man. Doesn't make any sense. 1 Peter 1.5 Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now this speaks to perseverance of the saints, but notice what it says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Who is the one who keeps you a believer? God. God. Christ himself says, no one can pluck them from my hand who my Father has given me. You can't, no one can, you can't take yourself out. Praise the Lord. You can't take yourself out. You're saved, you're saved. That's it. That's it. So, you hear this talk. Well, yeah, but what about the unpardonable sin? You could commit the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? Anyone ever heard that? I can tell you, I've, I've heard, but it's incorrect, but I have heard the answer to that. So, so a few of you nodded your head yes, right? Anybody want to say? If somebody else could have a different, go ahead. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Okay, anybody else? Not believing on Christ. Not believing on Christ. Anything else? Okay, well, you're both right. You're both right. There are no unpardonable sins. I mean, there are no pardonable sins. They are all unpardonable. They're all unpardonable. You're saying, well, what? Okay, well, I want you to think about this for a second. What does a pardon mean? What does a pardon mean? What does a pardon mean? Okay, so <laughs> right now in politics, you're hearing the talk, right? And the talk is, is that if, if uh, some of these Republican candidates get elected, they would pardon Trump, right? You heard this? And we know, going history, Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon, right? Presidents pardon people. They have the power to pardon. They power people all the time. What does that mean? When they pardon them, what does it mean? Don't, don't, don't you have to get technical here? What was that? Is that what it means? Is that what it means? Sentence is commuted. You with me on these? Both are true. Both are true. The crime, they could still be guilty of. Are you with me on this? They could still be guilty of it, but they've been pardoned. The sentence, the punishment, has been taken away. Yes? That's not true for your sins. You must pay the penalty for your sin. 
God does not pardon anyone. Christ paid the penalty for your sins. You are not pardoned. Your sentence was not commuted. Christ paid the penalty for your sins. We don't see that in the justice system. We can't say, well, you know, they did the crime, but I'll do the time. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It certainly isn't true for your sins, except if it's God who Jesus Christ was. Why? He's the only one that wasn't guilty. The only one who wasn't guilty. Your sentence is not pardoned. You've not been pardoned. We have hymns that talk about you being pardoned. You're not pardoned. The penalty for your sins is still paid by Jesus Christ. Still paid. Sir? Interestingly enough, there are other references to sins that are not pardonable. And you'll see some references to names being blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Heard of that before? There's two references to that. Name being blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. What's that mean? When somebody's name is blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life, what's it mean? They're not safe, right? They're not safe. So, if God chose before the foundations of the earth someone to be saved, what then can stop them from being saved? Nothing. We just read the verse. The confession's making the point. Can somebody do a sin that reverses God's election? Can they blaspheme the Holy Spirit and reverse God's election? They cannot. The simple fact is, is that every single sin that you commit is blasphemy against the Creator God. Every sin. Every sin. Are there some sins, like blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that are far worse than others? Now, <laughs> we're going down the rabbit hole here. I'm going to tell you right now, we're going down a rabbit hole. There are. Why? Well, because God calls some sins worse than others. Right? He calls some sins sins, then some sins that he hates. There's a difference. There's a difference, right? But it doesn't matter what the difference is as much in your redemption because any sin gets you a trip to hell. Any sin. It's, that sin has to be paid for because it's been committed. Christ has to pay for that sin. Christ has to. So, a believer, in a moment of unbelievable stress and anger, like Job level, let's say, right? Or worse than Job level. I mean, could it be worse than Job? Yeah, it could be worse than Job. So, that kind of level of stress swears, uses God's name in vain. Swears. Can they lose their election? They cannot. Because that would mean, then, that man's act could reverse God's election. It's impossible. That cannot be possible. Can't be. Now, does that mean that person was never saved? No. It does not mean that person was never saved. How do you know? You don't. 
How's that for an answer? You don't know. Why? Because we can't know men's hearts. We can't know men's hearts. We don't know if they were saved or not. There are signs of fruit, are there not? That we can know that someone is saved. And by the way, you know, it's interesting. I'm, so next week, I'm preaching in another church. A church asked me to fill in, so I'm preaching in another church next week. And I've been going through some different sermons that I've done here because I felt like a few of them were okay. The rest of them, anyway. So I went through those. And one of them, um, I was reading through, and it actually had something about this. And I actually, that might be the one that I, that I actually end up preaching. But uh, the, uh, why did I have to tell you all that intro? Well, I don't know. Maybe because you've heard it before. So we can go down that path. But the bottom line is, is that uh, we must recognize that who we are and what we do is a sign of what's happening, but it's not conclusive. Does that make sense? Now, you see things in the Scripture, and this is what I'm talking about specifically when I was looking at these other, other sermons, and it was about the life of the church. Why is it that the church goes through difficulties? Why is it that things happen in the church that are problems? Well, the Scriptures say that the reason that these things, is, particularly the book of First Thessalonians, the reason these problems were happening was so that you could know who was truly saved. Think about that. God brings problems, allows problems, decrees problems into the church so that those that are faithful believers in the church will know who is truly a faithful believer and who isn't. <laughs> you don't hear that preached too often, do you? But that's what the scriptures say. It's true. Sometimes it's really hard to understand. Why did this happen? Why is this going on? Well, one of the reasons is, not all the reasons, one of the reasons is that God wants to purify the church. God wants those who are not believers to be segregated for us to know they're not believers. Have you ever seen that happen at a church? Yeah. Sure, probably. You probably have. I have. Many have. I can see a lot of heads nodding. Yeah, you do see this. So it's not like even then, before that happened, that we knew for sure who was saved. Do you see what I mean? It's not until something happens and then it's revealed. Then you get an idea. So hard for us to know for sure. Anyone who's saved. Hard. Hard. And by the way, don't think about it this way. That would probably suggest that you all should make sure your behavior will let everyone else know that you're saved. Right? Look, if your behavior is not clear to other people, if you're a believer, something's wrong with your behavior. Something's wrong with your behavior. If no one that you work with has any idea that you're a Christian, you, you should question yourself. You should question yourself. They, there should be a difference there. Most people, most unbelievers, recognize the difference. <laughs> it's kind of funny, because really it's to the point of what Stu just brought up. Where do a lot of lost people see a difference between you in a work environment? A lot of times, 
It's swearing. Because you don't swear. A lot of times. That's where they see a difference. Now, sometimes people say, well, I don't go out for drinks with them every Friday night. That could be true. That could be true. Well, I don't go party on the weekends. Well, that could be true. But there is something in the behavior that you have that's different. Look, you're here. Sunday mornings, you're here. Unbelievers are not. They're doing other stuff. This is grocery day. This is lawn mowing day. You see it, right? Used to be that was Saturday, by the way. I don't know any of you guys don't remember. You're too young back there. But the rest of us remember when Sundays were a day where no one did anything. Stores weren't even open. I remember that. Anybody else remember that? Yeah. Stores weren't open. There'd be an odd gas station open. But stores weren't open. Restaurants weren't open. Kind of like if you go to Amish country today. We were just there in Ohio not too long ago. Everything's closed on Sunday. Everything is closed on Sunday. I mean, the only places in Berlin that are open on Sunday is the uh, Burger King and the hotels. Gas stations are closed. Interesting, on the car wash, self-serve car wash, right? Oh, no one's working there. It's self-serve. They had signs. We got a picture of it that says, although we're open seven days a week, we would request, if possible, you do not use this wash on Sundays. Pretty good. Pretty good. All right, let's keep going. Exclusive recipients. Neither are there any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Well, obviously, you, can, you know where we're going with this. The call of the gospel comes to many, but only the elect are effectually called. Only the elect are effectually called. In other words, if you notice here, none other are redeemed by Christ or effectually called blah, 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 except the elect. In other words, it's not a combination of the elect and those who luck upon it, stumble into it. Self-made believers. That doesn't work that way. First John, I'm sorry, John, two verses. John 10, 26. But ye believe not because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you. This is Christ speaking. You believe not because you are not of my sheep. It, wow, think about that. So Christ is telling those who are listening, you don't believe what I'm saying because you're not elect. You're not on my sheep. That's why you don't believe. Now, they probably didn't understand that. Safe to say. They did not understand what he was talking about there. But we can. We can. John 17, 9. I pray for them. I pray not. This is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ speaking. I pray not for the world but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Christ is not praying for everyone. He is praying for the elect. He's praying for the elect. Keep in mind, we've said it before many times, and you should remember this, don't get caught up in this populist notion in churches that Christ died on the cross for all men. He did not. He did not. He died for the elect. What's the most simple way to understand that? It's very simple. If Christ died on the cross for all men, then all men are forgiven. All men are forgiven if he died for all men. If he died for all sin, then all sin is forgiven. 
That's it. You don't need to be saved because your sins are forgiven. You're going to have eternal life. It's very simple. It's very simple. Okay. It's prudent handling. Paragraph 7. Let's make sure I see. Okay. I got actually two long passages to read for this paragraph. It's not a long paragraph. There's a few points to it here, but it's all right. Okay. So we've just worked through God's decree all the way up through and including election. Now, the last paragraph of the chapter is focused on how you deal with this, how you understand this, and what this then means, how you conduct yourself with this knowledge that God has planned everything. We've talked about it, right, so far. Have I not? It says things like, well, just because God has already chosen who's going to be saved, that doesn't mean that we don't have to share the gospel. Right? Remember we talking about that? And why? Because God may be using you to be the one who shares the gospel for that person to be saved. And more importantly, he commands you to. All right. The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Now, it would be easy for me just to read through that and cover each phrase as we go so you get it, but I made other slides. So let's go to that. God has not revealed the complete details of the relation between God's sovereign purpose and the free agency of man. We do not see that entirely. We do not understand that entirely. So we must accept what his word says. That's simply it. We cannot fully explain it. Why? It's a divine mystery. He hasn't explained it all to us. By the way, if we knew all the details of Christ's coming, we could pick the day and the time he's coming. Right? Like, if we knew, if the Bible said he's going to come in December of 2023, according to the Roman sinful calendar, then we would know. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say when he's going to come. There are signs. We see signs mentioned, right? We see different things that are going to happen. We see all these things. But we don't even know for sure when that is, do we? That is not fully revealed to us. It is still a mystery. Hence, hence, like in the Old Testament, did Genesis, did Adam and Eve get the explanation from God that through the millennia, eventually, one would be born who would be the Son of God. That he would live, die on the cross to pay the penalty for all man's sins, rise from the dead, and he would be the means of salvation for all men. Did he explain that to them? He did not. How far did he get down that path? Well, that Satan's head would be crushed. Right? He does mention that. The rest was a divine mystery. 
It was not fully revealed. And as we work our way through the Old Testament, we see all these different foreshadowings of what's going to happen. We see all these different references. We see, especially when you read the Psalms, right? You see David and many, many things he said. We see Isaiah. We see Daniel. We see a bunch of different books in the Old Testament who give us things that then they become the prophecies that Christ fulfills. But the exact way that Christ was going to come, what was going to happen, how it was going to happen, not totally revealed. Were there some that were able to put together the pieces and they were ready for Christ to come, and when he did, they recognized him? There was. There was not very many. There was. I think you could probably argue, this isn't in the scripture, you could probably argue that there were more that did not know than those who did know the signs. Are you with me on that? There were fewer that recognized this is Christ because boom, he ticked all the boxes. <laughs> this is it. Then there were who said, who's this? Are you with me? It was not revealed fully to them. The end times are not fully revealed to us. We can't even come to an agreeable conclusion in the church about what's going to happen next. True? We can't. We haven't. I'm not sure our church, sure in our church, but I'm saying in the church universally, lots of views on what's going to happen, not fully revealed. So how is it that God choosing who is going to be elect and man seemingly acting of his own accord, how does that work together? Can't explain it. Just can say that's the way that God's word said it is, so it must be true. Does that make sense? We have to accept it because God's word says so. That's it. Both are revealed, but the full truth is not. Neither can it be discovered by human reason. So you say, well, let's think through this process. It's not there. It's not there. And by the way, that's the reason that we have the scripture, so that our failed human intellect that's fallen, that is not perfect, that does not reason perfectly, That human intellect doesn't have to figure these things out. It's in the Scripture. Now, should we be deriving truths from the Scripture that are not specifically explained in the Scripture? Yes, we should. In fact, Paul writes about that, that we should be doing that. We should be understanding things that are either not only specifically dictated in Scripture, but that we see the pattern, we see standards, right? But we have to be careful because we can't contradict it. And we have to remember that it's, on our, it's not, not a command of Scripture, but we believe Scripture teaches. Hmm? See the difference? Important. This doctrine is often misunderstood and abused. Therefore, special prudence and care should be used when discussing it. You can, you can see how you can go, you can really swing the pendulum on this doctrine, right? You can really swing the pendulum here. You can say, well... God's already decreed anything, so I can do anything I want to, because if, it ha- if I do, God planned it. What restraint do I need? God planned it. I want to start just knocking cars off the road out of my way on my way to work? Well, if I can do it, if I literally can do it, then God planned for me to do that. That would be abusing this principle. Hmm? Even if you're tempted. This doctrine is important because it teaches us that those who learn the will of God and his word and obey it are showing the sign of their effectual calling and their eternal election. In other words, 
If you're a believer and you understand this doctrine of God's decree and you accept that it's true and you still restrain yourself, that's an indication you're a believer. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's an indication you're a believer. It's one way. We should praise God for the pre- that he, for he predestinated the elect to glory. We should praise him. We should reverence God because of his glorious grace and glorious justice. We should admire God and bow in humility because he elected us in eternity. Look, you don't have the right or the permission of God to be proud of the fact that you're elect. You should be humbled that you're elect. Because I don't care how good you are, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. So we should be humble. You know, boy, do we have problems with humility, don't we? I mean, this is just a problem. Of course, humility and the lack of humility kind of goes hand in hand with ego, doesn't it? Right? Because if you have a bigger ego, you're not very humble. You know? And, and all of our egos want to rise and stand out, which makes us less humble. Right? So we think we're right. We think we're doing the right thing. We think we think the right way. We think our decisions are the right decisions. Other people aren't doing the right thing. Every time you think all that stuff, you're not humble. What you should realize is, is that other people could be right and you could be wrong. The only place you can clearly make that distinction is what the Scripture says. So if the Scripture says something and somebody else says, no, that's not what I'm doing or I'm not gonna, I don't agree with that, okay, they're wrong. And you could humbly think, man, I'm glad that's not me. We should be humble. We should be diligent to make our election and calling sure. We should be diligent. Diligent to make our calling, our election sure. What does that mean? Search your heart. Search your heart. And the fruit of your life should reflect this. It's not enough to get... So look, here. let me give you an example where you see this is a problem. Somebody gets saved, they make a profession of faith, and they never once act like they're a believer. Have you ever seen anybody like that? I have. Have you? Or heard of somebody like that? Yeah. Very sad because that looks like they're not a believer. But they fooled themselves into thinking that they are. It's not only the ones that fooled themselves that don't act like a believer. It's also those who still do things because they think that works is what saves them. And they're the ones that Christ said he will see at the end, at the end, the judgment seat of Christ, he will see them and they'll cry out that, hey, didn't we do these things in your name? He says, depart from me, curse, I never knew you. Wow. So someone who makes that profession of faith and then doesn't act like a believer, something's wrong. They're probably not a believer. If someone said, well, I went to, you know, you're talking to somebody and they say, well, I went to church when I was little and, you know, my aunt took me or my grandparents took me or my mom dropped me off on Sunday morning, whatever, whatever the case is, I've heard all those. There's lots of things like that. Van picked me up. We're done. And, uh, you know, I was going for a long time and, you know, finally I heard, you know, the 
Sunday school teacher taught a lesson, and I knew I was safe too. I was, one, I was safe too. But what happened? Well, I stopped going that next year. You know, I haven't been back to church since. Really? You feel no compelling interest to worship God? Not really. Don't be that person. Work to make your election and calling sure. All right. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read a passage there, and then you can put a thumb in that, or a finger, or a bulletin, or a whatever you have. And then turn to Romans chapter 10. Two long passages there regarding this that I want to read. Um, but I am going to read a few verses before that. But I'm going to let you turn first so that I don't uh, get too far ahead or you don't hear the other verses. But all, it's all the verses that are up here. And you can see there's a lot of footnotes here. 18, 19, 20, and 21 in this uh, chapter. Um, so I'm going to read those. And then also are the verses that we're going to, I'd like you to follow along as I read in Acts chapter 2 and Romans chapter 10. All right, people are pretty close to there. So I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. It's your election in God. God is the one who elected. 2 Peter 1.10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fail. Now in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is actually telling the believers how they should behave. Why? This makes sure that you're elect. Ephesians 1.6, To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Who or for what purpose are we accepted in the Beloved? In other words, are we one of the children of God? Are we adopted as children of the God? To the praise and glory of His grace. Not ours. His grace. Romans 11.33, O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. In other words, we do not understand why God does what he does. The only time that we understand what God, why God does what he does is when he specifically tells us in his word. So I'm just going to tell you. I mean, just I want you to think about this for a second because you should remember this. When you don't know why God did something, you're not supposed to know. Why did I get sick? Why did my loved one die? Why did I get in a car accident? Why were there plane problems? Why were there... Whatever happens. If God has not revealed to you in His Word why that happens, He doesn't need to, and He doesn't need to answer your question. The reality is, you don't need to ask the question. You need to accept that God has, uh, has decreed whatever happens, happens, and it's for His glory. That's why. But how can the plane getting canceled, the roads being flooded, my flight getting changed to 18 hours later, and then that getting canceled, and me having to go on another airlines and sit in the airport for 36 hours, how can that be for His glory? His ways are past finding out. You know what that means? We don't know. 
We don't know. We just know that it is. We just know that it is. And by the way, who he loves, he chastens. Boy, that's a snappy verse to use on somebody who's going through difficulties, isn't it? How do they react to that generally? Have you ever said that? Not well. They don't react well to that. That's a good verse to look at in retrospect. We are talking about prudent handling. <laughs> That's not a prudent handling. <laughs> so, let's just keep in mind that God's ways are past finding out. This is, this is an important verse. Romans 11, 33. Let's read on. Romans 11, 5, 6, and 20. Even so then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Who are the remnant? The remnant are believers. Why are they, are they believers? Because of the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. Well, your, your election is not based on what you do. Not based on what you do. And I want, to keep in, I want you to keep in mind that everything you do, you think, you know, is, this is what we think, works. We think like Roman Catholicism or we think about you know, some other religions. We think about these, and we think, well, oh, yeah, they got to go do this, and they got to go do that, and they have, to do, they have to do penance, and they have to do these different things. And that's what we think of when we think of works. That's not all works. Works is everything we do. There is no works that you can accomplish for salvation. This is the whole idea of being predestinated. You can't make a choice. That's works. It's not grace. See, if, it, if it's works, if you making a decision to be saved is true, if that really is the case, then it's not grace. Grace is giving you something you don't deserve. You don't deserve salvation. If God gives you salvation, that's grace. It's grace. Anything that you do to merit salvation would be works. Right? It'd be works. Say, think, do, anything. Works. Now, is works, some of you may be going down the path on this, it's okay, is works still something that we should do? Yes, in fact, it's the sign of a believer. A believer who has no works is not a believer. You are compelled to serve God. Compelled. As a believer. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. Do we quench that spirit some? Resist the call to the works? Some. All of us. Right? Some more than others. And, frankly, if you know this is true... You, I humbly admit this, that has changed for you in life, right? Sometimes you feel more compelled, sometimes you feel less compelled, right? This is true. This is the way it is. Why? Things happen in life. Our flesh gets in the way, right? Happens. Luke 10.20, Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, I want to read that verse again, because I want you to think about what Christ is saying to the apostles. 
Luke 10, 20, notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What is he talking about? Who are the spirits he's talking about to the apostles? Anybody? Demons. So what he's talking about is, is that the apostles were going to be given power, the disciples at the time, were going to be given power to cast out demons. They had done this. He had sent them out, temporarily gave them the power to cast out demons. He cast out demons many times in front of them, right? But look what he says. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, that you could actually do this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Praise God that that's the case, right? Acts 2. Here we go. 21 through 39. 21 through 39. So I want you to pay attention here and see exactly how election is woven into the message. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, have ye taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Pause. First question, whose message is this? Verse 23. This is God's decree. God delivered, it was delivered, Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He planned this to happen. You took him and wicked hands crucified and killed him. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore I did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou shalt make known to me, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, so what does he do here? He quotes David. Who do they respect? David. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, for he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did seek corruption. By the way, when does the body start corrupting? Day four. Day four. That Jesus, God, that this Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore ye are all, we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou by my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, 
whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ, or Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Who is the promise made to for salvation? See, look, let me tell you the Presbyterian reading of that verse. For the promise is unto you and to your children and all that are afar off. Hmm, they don't cut the rest out of their Bible. They just don't want to focus on that because it says, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Your children are not all called. Their children were not all called. It's whoever God calls. The promise is not just to you. This is what he's saying. The promise is not just to you who are hearing this. This promise is to everyone. Everyone. Your children, those that are far off, those that are coming down the road. The promise is to all. For as many as God called. Romans 10, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. By the way, where does verse 10 say true belief happens in the heart? The mouth only confesses it. For the scripture saith, Whatsoever, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation, why will anger you? But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. I say then, Hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknow. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. 
Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. This is it's a long passage, but the argument is good. And the argument is, is that God has worked this through history, and this is happening yet at his time, when he's writing this to, to the Romans, that basically God has caused some to slumber. Their eyes will never be opened. Some of them will. There is an election, there is a remnant of those who are elect. There are some that believe. Is it just the Jews? And no. Are the Jews excluded? No. He says, hey, I'm an Israelite. No. God's plan was for Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. Right? And praise the Lord because most of us are Gentiles. I think. I don't know. Doesn't really matter. Not in salvation. Right? So, that concludes the chapter. Let us keep in mind some of the ideas here, particularly in this last paragraph, that we should handle this doctrine prudently. That although we understand that God orchestrates all of history and everything that happens, that we are still commanded to obey him, to be the believers that he wants us to be. And in fact, that's part of his plan. And how can that possibly be when we think we're making our decisions and we think we're doing everything that we're doing? Well, divine mystery. Divine mystery. Let's close in a word of prayer.